Chapter Seventeen of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Seventeen. The breach between Littleton and his wife was too serious to be healed, for he was confronted by the conviction that Selma was a very different being from the woman whom he had supposed that he was marrying. He had been slow to harbor distrust and loathe, even in the face of her own words, to admit that he had misinterpreted her character. But this last conversation left no room for doubt. Selma had declared to him unequivocally that his ideas and theory of life were repugnant to her, and that henceforth she intended to act independently of them, so far as she could do, and yet maintain the semblance of the married state. It was a cruel shock and disappointment to him. At the time of his marriage, he would have said that the least likely of possible happenings would be self-deception as to the character of the woman he loved, yet this was precisely what had befallen him. Having realized his mistake, he did not seek to flinch from the bitter truth. He saw clearly that their future relations toward each other must be largely formal, that tender comradeship and soul alliance were at an end. At the same time, his simple, direct conscience promptly indicated to him that it was his duty to recognize Selma's point of view and endeavor to satisfy it as far as he could without sacrifice of his own principles. He chose to remember that she too had made a mistake, and that he was not the kind of husband whom she desired. But his tastes were not her tastes, nor his ambitions hers. That she had tastes and ambitions of her own, which he, as the man to whom she was bound by law, must not disregard. Thus reasoning, he resolved to carry out the scheme of life which she appeared to despise, but also to work hard to provide her with the means to fulfill her own aims. She craved money for social advancement. She should have it from him, for there was no other source from which she could obtain it. The poignancy of his own sorrow should not cause him to ignore that she had given up her own career and pursuits in order to become his wife, and was now disappointed and without independent resources. His pride was sorely wounded, his ideals shattered, and his heart crushed, Yet though he could not forbear from judging Selma, and was unconscious of having failed in his obligations to her as a husband and a man, he saw what she called her side, and he took up the thread of life again under the spur of the intention to give her everything but love. On her part, Selma felt aggrieved yet emancipated. She did not look for any such grave result from her vituperation. She had intended to reprove his surrender of the parson's contract in direct opposition to her own wishes with the severity it deserved, and to let him understand clearly that he was sacrificing her happiness no less than his own by his hysterical folly. When the conversation developed stubborn resistance on his part, and she realized that he was defending and adhering to his purpose, a righteous sense of injury became predominant in her mind over everything else. All her past wrongs cried for redress, and she rejoiced in the opportunity of giving free vent to the pent-up grievances which had been accumulating for many months. Even then it was startling to her that Wilbur should suddenly utter the tragic ultimatum that their happiness was at an end, and hint at divorce. She considered that she loved him, and it had never occurred to her that he could cease to love her. Rather than retract a word of her own accusations, she would have let him leave her, then and there, to live her own life without protection or support from him. But his calmer decision that they should continue to live together yet apart suited her better. In spite of his resolute mien, she was skeptical of the seriousness of the situation. She believed in her heart that after a few days of restraint they would resume their former life, and that Wilbur, on reflection, would appreciate that he had been absurd. 
When it became apparent that he was not to be appeased, and that his threat was genuine, Selma accepted the new relation without demur, and prepared to play her part in the compact as though she had been equally obdurate in her outcry for her freedom. She met reserve with reserve, maintaining rigorously this attitude that she had been wronged and that he was to blame. Meantime, she watched him narrowly, wondering what his grave, sad demeanor and solicitous politeness signified, when presently it became plain to her that not merely she was to be free to follow her own bent, but that he was ready to provide her with the means to carry out her schemes. She regarded his liberality as weakness and a sign that he knew in his heart that she was in the right. Immediately, and with thinly concealed triumph, she planned to utilize the new liberty at her disposal, purging any scruples from her conscience by the generous reflection that when Wilbur's brow unbent and his lips moved freely, she would forgive him and proffer him once more her conjugal counsel and sympathy. She was firmly of the opinion that, unless he thus acknowledged his shortcomings and promised improvement, the present arrangement was completely to her liking, and that confidence and happiness between them would be utterly impossible. She shed some tears over the thought that unkind circumstances had robbed her of the love by which she had set such store, and which she on her part still cherished, but she comforted herself with the retort that its loss was preferable to sacrificing weakly the development of her own ideas and life to its perpetuation. Her flush of triumph was succeeded, however, by a discontented mood, because cogitation constrained her to suspect that her social progress might not be so rapid as her first rosy visions had suggested. She counted on being able to procure the participation of Wilbur sufficiently to preserve the appearance of domestic harmony. This would be for practical purposes a scarcely less effective furtherance of her plans than if he were heartily in sympathy with them, were there not many instances where busy husbands took part in the social undertakings of their wives. The attitude of Wilbur seemed reasonably secure. That which harassed her as the result of her reflections and efforts to plan was the unpalpable consciousness that she did not know exactly what to do, and that no one, even now that she was free, appeared eager to extend to her the hand of recognition. She was prompt to lay blame of this on her husband. It was he who, by preventing her from taking advantage of the social opportunities at their disposal, had consigned her to this eddy where she was overlooked. This seemed to her a complete excuse, and yet, though she made the most of it, it did not satisfy her. Her helplessness angered her, and aroused her old feelings of suspicion and resentment, against the fashionable crew who appeared to be unaware of her existence. She was glad to believe that the reason they ignored her was because she was too serious-minded and spiritual to suit their frivolous and pleasure-loving tastes. Sometimes she reasoned that the sensible thing for her to do was to break away from her present life, where convention and caste trammeled her efforts, and make a name for herself as an independent soul, like Mrs. Margaret Rodney Earle and other free-born women of the Republic. With satisfaction, she pictured herself on the lecture platform uttering burning denunciation of the un-American social proclivities of this shallow society, and initiating a crusade which should sweep it from existence beneath the ban of the moral sense of the thoughtful people of the country. But more frequently she nursed her resentment against Mrs. Williams, to whom she ascribed the blame of her isolation, reasoning that if Flossie had been a true friend, not even Wilbur's waywardness would have prevented her from social recognition and success, that instead this volatile, fickle prattler had used her so long as she needed her, and then dropped her heartlessly. The memory of Flossie's ball still rankled deeply, 
and appeared to Selma a more obvious and more exasperating insult as the days passed without a sign of explanation on the part of her late neighbor, and as her new projects languished, for lack of a few words of introduction here and there, which in her opinion were all she needed to ensure her enthusiastic welcome as a social leader. The appreciation that without those words of introduction she was helpless for the time being focused her resentment already keen on the successful Flossie, whose gay doings had disappeared from the public prints in a blaze of glory with the advent of the Lenten season. Refusing to acknowledge her dependence, Selma essayed several spasmodic attempts to assert herself, but they proved unsatisfactory. She made the most of Mr. Parsons' predilection for her society, which had not been checked by Wilbur's termination of the contract. She was thus enabled to affiliate with some of their new friends, but she was disagreeably conscious that she was not making progress, and that Mr. and Mrs. Parsons and their daughter had, like herself, been dropped by the Williamses, dropped skillfully and imperceptibly, yet nonetheless dropped. Two dinner parties which she gave in the course of a fortnight to the most important of these new acquaintances, by way of manifesting to Wilbur her intention to enjoy her liberty at his expense, left her depressed and sore. It was just at this time that Flossie took it into her head to call on her, one of her first Lenten duties as she hastened to assure Selma with glib liveliness. As soon as she entered, Flossie was in too exalted a frame of mind, too bubbling over with a desire to recite her triumphs, to have in mind either her doubts concerning Selma or the need of being more than mildly apologetic for the lack of devotion. She felt friendly, for she was in good humor and was naively desirous to be received in the same spirit, so that she might unbosom herself unreservedly. Sweeping into the room an animated vision of smiling, stylish cordiality, she sought, as it were, to carry her by force of her own radiant mood all obstacles to an amiable reception. My dear, we haven't met for ages. Thank heaven, Lent has come, and now I may see something of you. I said to Gregory only yesterday that I should make a beeline for your house, and here I am. Well, dear, how are you? All sorts of things has happened, Selma, since we had a real chat together. Do you remember my telling you? Of course you do. Not long after Gregory and I were married that I should never be satisfied until one thing happened. Well, you may congratulate me. It has happened. We dined a week ago tonight with my cousins, the Morton Prices, a dinner of fourteen, all of them, just the people I wished to know. Wasn't it lovely? I have waited for it to come, and I haven't moved a finger to bring it about, except to ask them to my dancing party. I had to do that, for after all, they are my relations. They accepted and came, and I was pleased by it, but they could easily have ignored me afterward if they had wished. What really pleased me, Selma, was their asking me to one of their select dinners, because— because it showed that where Flossie's hesitation was due partly to the inherent difficulty of expressing her thought with proper regard for modesty. With her rise in life, she had learned that unlimited laudation of self was not altogether consistent with fitness, even in such a confidential interview as the present. But she was also disconcerted by the look in Selma's eyes, a look which at first startled into momentary friendliness by the suddenness of the onslaught had become more and more lowering until it was unpleasantly suggestive of scornful dislike. While thus she faltered, Selma dryly rounded out the sentence with the words, Because it showed that you are somebody's now. Flossie gave an embarrassed little laugh. Yes, that's what I meant. I see you have a good memory, and it sounds nicer on your lips than it would have on mine. You have come here today on purpose to tell me this, said Selma. 
I thought you would be interested to hear that my cousins had recognized me at last. I remember you thought it strange that they should take so little notice of me. Flossy's festive manner had disappeared before the tart reception of her confidences, and her keen wits, baffled in their search for flattery, recalled the suspicions which were only slumbering. She realized that Selma was seriously offended with her, and though she did not choose to acknowledge to herself that she knew the cause, she had already guessed it. An encounter at repartee had no terrors for her, if necessary, and the occasion seemed to her opportune for probing the accumulating mysteries of Selma's hostile demeanor. Yet without waiting for a response to her last remark, she changed the subject and said volubly, I hear that your husband has refused to build the new Parsons house because Mrs. Parsons insisted on drawing the plans. Selma's pale, tense face flushed. She thought for a moment that she was being taunted. That was Mr. Littleton's decision, not mine. I admire his independence. He was quite right. What do Mrs. Parsons or her daughter know about architecture? Everybody's laughing at them. You know, I consider your husband a friend of mine, Selma. And we were friends, too, I believe, Selma exclaimed, after a moment of stern silence. Naturally, responded Flossy, with slightly sardonic air, prompted by the acerbity with which the question was put. Then if we were friends, our friends, why have you ceased to associate with us? Simply because you live on another street and in a finer house? Flossy gave a gasp. Oh! She said to herself, it's true, she is jealous. Why didn't I appreciate this before? Am I not associating with you now by calling on you, Selma? She said aloud, I don't understand what you mean. You are calling on me, and you ask us to dinner, to meet, to meet just the people we knew already, and didn't care to meet. But you have never asked us to meet your new friends, and you left us out when you gave your dancing party. You do not dance. How do you know? I have never associated you with dancing. I assume that you did not dance. What grounds had you for such an assumption? Really, Selma, your catechism is most extraordinary. Excuse my smiling, and I don't know how to answer your questions, your fierce questions, any better. I didn't ask you to my party because I suppose that you and your husband were not interested in that sort of thing, and would not know any of the people. You have often told me that you thought they were frivolous. I consider them so still. Then why do you complain? Because. Because you have not acted like a friend. Your idea of friendship has been to pour into my ears day after day how you had been asked to dinner by this person, and taken up by that person, until I was weary of the sound of your voice. But it seems not to have occurred to you as a friend of mine, and a friend and admirer of my husband, to introduce us to people whom you were eager to know, and who might have helped him in his profession. And now, after turning a cold shoulder on us and omitting us from your party because you assumed I didn't dance, you have come here this morning in the name of friendship to tell me that your cousins at last have invited you to dinner. And yet you think it strange that I'm not interested? That's the only reason you came, to let me know that you are a somebody now, and you expected me, as a friend and a nobody, to tell you how glad I am. Flossie's eyes opened wide. Free as she was accustomed to be in her own utterances, this flow of bitter speech delivered with seer-like intensity was a new experience to her. She did not know whether to be angry or amused by the indictment, which caused her to wince notwithstanding that she deemed it slander. Moreover, the insinuation that she had been a bore was humiliating. "'I shall not weary you so soon again with my confidences,' she answered, 
So it appears that you were envious of me all the time, that while you were preaching to me that fashionable society was hollow and un-American, you were secretly unhappy because you couldn't do what I was doing, because you weren't invited too. Oh, I see it all now. It's as clear as daylight. I've suspected the truth for some time, but I've refused to credit it. Now everything is explained. I took you at your word. I believed in you and your husband and looked to you as literary people, people who were interested in fine and ennobling things. I admired you for the very reason that I thought you didn't care, and that you didn't need to care about society and fashionable position. I kept saying to you that I envied you your tastes, and let you see that I considered myself your real inferior in my determination to attract attention and oblige society to notice us. I was guileless and simpleton enough to tell you of my progress, things I would have blushed to tell another woman like myself, because I considered you the embodiment of high aims and spiritual ideas, as far superior to mine as the poetic star is superior to the garish electric light. I thought it might amuse you to listen to my vanities. Instead, it seems you were masquerading and were eating your heart out with envy of me, poor me. You were ambitious to be like me. I wouldn't be like you for anything in the world. You couldn't if you tried. That's one of the things which this extraordinary interview has made plain beyond the shadow of a doubt. You are aching to be a social success. You are not fit to be. I have found that out for certain today. It is false, exclaimed Selma with a tragic intonation. You do not understand. I have no wish to be a social success. I should abhor to spend my life after the manner of you and your associates. What I object to, what I complain of, is that in spite of your fine words and pretended admiration of me, you have preferred these people, who are exclusive, without a shadow of right, to me who was your friend, and that you have chosen to ignore me for the sake of them, and behaved as if you thought I was not their equal or your... That is not friendship. It is snobbishness un-American snobbishness. It is very amusing, amusing yet depressing, continued Flossie without heed to this asservation. You have proved one of my ideals to be a delusion which is sad. She had arisen and stood gently swaying pennant by its crook her gay parasol, with her head on one side, and seeming for once to be choosing her words judiciously. When we first met, and I nearly rushed into your arms, I was fascinated, and I said to myself, that here was the sort of American woman who I had dreamed, the sort of woman I had fondly imagined once that I might become. I saw you were unsophisticated and different from the conventional women to whom I was accustomed. And even at first the things you said every now and then gave me a creepy feeling, but you were inspiring to look at. Though now that the scales have fallen from my eyes, I wonder at my infatuation. And I continued to worship you as a goddess on a pedestal. I used to say to Gregory, there's a couple who are to the manner born. They never have to make believe. They are genuinely free and gentle souls. Your husband? I can't believe that I have been deluded in regard to him also. I just wonder if you appreciate him. If it is possible that he has been deluded also. That's rank impertinence. I know, but after all, we are unbosoming our thoughts to each other today. We may as well speak openly. You said just now that it was his decision not to go on with the parson's house. Did you disapprove of it? Yes, I disapproved of it, answered Selma with flashing eyes. And what if I did? She stood and rose, confronting her visitor, as though to banish her from the house. I'm going, said Flossie. It's none of my concern, of course, and I'm aware that I appear very rude. I'm anxious, though, not to lose faith in your husband. And now that I begin to understand you, my wits are being flooded with light. I was saying that you were not fit to be a social success, and I'm going to tell you why. 
No one else is likely to, and I'm just mischievous and frank enough. You're one of those American women, I've always been curious to meet one in all her glory, who believe that they are born in the complete panoply of flawless womanhood, that they are by birthright consummate housewives, leaders of the world's thought and ethics, and peerless society queens. All this by instinct, by heritage, and without education, that's what you believe, isn't it? And now you are offended because you haven't been invited to become a leader of New York society. You don't understand, and I don't suppose you ever will understand, that a true lady, a genuine society queen, represents modesty and sweetness and self-control and gentle thoughts and feelings, that she is evolved by gradual processes from generation to generation, not ready-made. Oh, you needn't look to me like that. I'm quite aware that if I were the genuine article, I shouldn't be talking to you in this fashion. But there's hope for me because I'm conscious of my shortcomings and I'm trying to correct them, whereas you are satisfied and fail to see the difference between yourself and the well-bred women whom you envy and sneer at. You're pretty and smart and superficial and common, and you don't know it. I'm rather dreadful, but I'm learning. I don't believe you will ever learn. There. Now I'm going. Go! cried Selma with a wave of her arm. Yes, I am one of those women. I am proud to be, and you have insulted by your aspersions, not only me, but the spirit of independent and aspiring American womanhood. You don't understand us, and you have nothing in common with us. You think to keep us down by your barriers of caste, borrowed from a fet European courts? But we, I, the American people, defy you. The time will come when we shall rise in our might and teach you your place. Go! Envy you? I would not become one of your frivolous and purposeless set if you were all on your bended knees for me. Oh, yes, you would, exclaimed Flossie, glancing back over her shoulder, and it's because you've not been given the chance that we have quarreled now. End of chapter 17